An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan and I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line just as soon as he finishes doing something for his uncle, it's Andy Greenwald! <laughs> is that, is that <laughs> phrase? That's, 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 that one's, that's marked now. That means something the window. now. Yeah, it really means something now. Andy, it's mm-hmm. wonderful to see you. It's Monday after Thanksgiving. Always a sentimental time in the Greenwald Ryan relationship because mm-hmm. some of our our best memories were forged during the long Thanksgiving weekends spent in Philadelphia. Andy, some would say that's when we did the best studying. Uh, studying? Yes. Oh, without question. I would also say that you say some of the best memories. I would say some of the most significant missing memories. Just like huge lacunae of time. Just <laughs> That's gone. Right. Um, That's right. Yeah, you were missed. You were missed on the East Coast. Yeah, I uh, stayed here, hung out. We did a little time in a Huntington Beach. Shout out, uh, Costa Mesa. Just did a, a, a little, uh, some family stuff out there. It was pretty we- intense out on the roads in California. Nobody really wants to hear my traffic report, but 1010 <laughs> win style. Uh, let's just say people are driving pretty aggressively. Were you out there uh, canvassing for Katie Porter and no one told you that it was over? <laughs> Dude, you don't want to know what I've done for uh, keeping California blue out here. Um, Greenwald, uh, a lot of stuff yeah. to talk about, White Lotus specifically, but I wanted to open it up to just discuss, to mm-hmm. get a feel for where your head's at. It's been actually like a full week since we've chatted about culture. And, you know, I don't think that we're in full Iger counter zone right now. We certainly have covered it thoroughly on this podcast, on the town, on Bill's pod, on plain English. But I did want to ask if you had a chance to check out the most recent Disney World 
release, Disney World, mm. Dis- Disney, Walt Disney Company release, uh, Strange World. Yep. Yeah. A hundred percent did. Um, I and saw I the you film. watched that on a, on a streaming service, is that right? Or is that a, no, in no, the theaters? No, no, it's theatrical only. Okay, so you were it one of actually, the 19 people who went and saw that. So this is actually, so I, I'm glad we can fold this into a larger industry conversation because, you know, I, I, I understand that I used all my Daddington Island chips when I interviewed Joe Brum, the creator of Bluey, a show that you, to repeat a quote, ended your bloodline rather than ever risk seeing. That's right. Um, you know, perhaps your hottest take, but we can, we can save that for a later podcast. Strange World is excellent. Let me start there. Okay. Strange World is a very, very good film that apparently catastrophically bombed at the weekend. And, you know, straw poll among people, professional, personal that I've talked to in the last three days, a majority of them, even some with children, had never heard of it. I had so, never heard of it until you texted me and said, I need to address this on the, on the podcast. I, so, so broad strokes, just from the Daddington Island perspective, this is a very, very good animated film. It is a, it's a, you know, it, it's a Disney release around Thanksgiving. So it's a, a family story in which Dennis Quaid voices the character of a legendary explorer of a small town surrounded by mountains. And his son, Searcher, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, does not want to follow in his father's footsteps. Their father, father's obsessed with finding what's beyond the mountains. The son refuses, the father storms off, the son discovers instead a plant that basically creates electricity, turning this place into a sort of steampunk Jules Verne paradise oh. and finds success as a farmer. But then the electric plants, something's wrong with them. And he, uh, along with his family, with his son, Ethan, played by um, Jabuki Young-White, and his wife, Meridian, played by Gabrielle Union, they go on an expedition and they end up falling through a crack in the ground and they discover this strange world that is like, Truly, I mean this with high, as high praise, this movie's beautiful in a way that Disney movies or American animated movies usually aren't. It's very surreal. It's very poetic. It's, it's more Miyazaki and it's like, let's go for it design sense. That's dope. So I know start, you're listening. Start, to start slipping in American animated. I'm going to start saying that about like, um, <laughs> about like crime, you know, not a lot of American bank robbery films. Chris. Truly reckon you, with the moral you, complexities of. I, I get this. You get to talk about the Yellowstone prequel in five minutes. Okay. Let me let me let me have my space. I just it's a very well done, well written, very well designed movie that absolutely fell flat on its face. And that's a bummer. So I I, I think that hopefully people will discover it and check it out. But in researching why it failed, I mean, it kind of gets into some of the issues that we've been talking oh, yeah. about, not just in regards to Disney, but in regards to what is even a success anymore. So there was a very kind of honestly difficult to parse article on deadline over the weekend. But I think it there were other versions of this story in other trade publications, basically comparing and contrasting the fate of Strange World, which was released and according to the headlines, could lose $200 million for Disney because of its low uh, ticket sales over the weekend. I want to circle back to that part, but go ahead. Yeah. I mean, $200 million, that's nothing. Bob Chapek lost $1.5 billy last quarter alone, right? So come on. Um, with the new Knives Out movie, Glass Onion, which apparently did gangbusters business in its... On a per-screen basis, yeah. ...only weekend of release. Because as people know, Brian Johnson and his producing partner uh, in the studio's MRC sold the rights to two Knives Out sequels directly to Netflix and a pretty groundbreaking deal. For a that, cool 3 hundo, sure, yeah. And so basically one and a half Strange Worlds losses. Uh, and, but of course, Ryan Johnson being a filmmaker and of a certain age and, you know, in, in belief system was like, this has to be in theaters. And Netflix was like, okay, you can have six days around Thanksgiving, but we didn't buy this to put it in theaters. So anyway, the, the industry 
trade talk was like, here is why this was a good decision for Disney to release Strange World into theaters and lose a ton of money, as opposed to doing what it had done with a lot of other recent movies, which is putting them directly on the Plus streaming service. And here's why it's questionable why Netflix is leaving tens of millions of dollars on the table by only giving Glass Onion a week-long release. And I guess I just want to start from the place of, this is just so weird. It's such a weird conversation. I haven't seen Glass Onion yet. We were talking about seeing it this week in the theater because the the momentum that I've heard behind it seems to be that this is actually a really great theatrical experience. And I would like to take part in that. But the place to start is, apparently these are both good movies. I can confirm one. I've heard tell from people I trust. Yeah, that's a thing to be celebrated. But the fact that their relative success and a, the ability to see them is just you know, at the, at the mercy and whimsy of the needs of these multinational corporations is nothing new, but it strikes me as odd. Oh, yeah. I mean, Andy, I don't understand it anymore. Like, yeah. I, I've, like, you told me about Strange World. I kind of voraciously read everything I could about this box office weekend after the fact. Mm-hmm. And I came away with more questions than I had answers, which is pretty typical. But like, I, I'm, I'm kind of like all upside down here. You know, the, the analysis of the Strange World was particularly fascinating to me because you're talking about this sort of this is like a slot that disney typically occupies right like having a theatrical kids movie in theaters for thanksgiving for that option for families as an option for families and they have been going back and forth kind of with a lot of these disney animated projects over the last few years of pulling them and putting them on disney plus because disney plus should be what it is to you and your family which is like the nightlight it is the go-to application to put on on your apple tv on your whatever to say okay kids you can watch this for an hour you can watch this for 15 minutes whatever it is for us it's more of like an andor machine you know what i mean or it's more of like a star wars or an mcu machine but like that i think it's general like probably overriding purpose is to provide family entertainment right it is but so let's go through some of the reasons that we read so the the reasoning that deadline said that this was a good move and i'm not arguing that it was good or bad like i was really happy to see in the theater and i think the bigger issue behind it is I think they didn't understand what they had, and I think they screwed up the marketing of it. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars on the marketing of it, but it is a tough sell. There are no songs. Uh, it's a new world. It's a new characters, and it doesn't have a villain, which was another thing that I thought was great about Frozen 2, but that made half a billion, so maybe it's not in the conversation. It is not an easy thing to communicate what's appealing and charming and unique about this movie. I get that, but the thinking was this. Disney generally historically has this Thanksgiving slot, right? And that's a good option for families. They don't want to give up that real estate. They don't want to disappoint people. There's value in that kind of like loyalty and understanding of your consumer base that Disney has often excelled at and maybe people feel like they've gotten away from. Two, it has to have rankled the staff, the creative staff, everyone in the animation department and at Pixar that basically the last like seven years worth of work has been dumped on a streaming service over the last few years. Don Hill, who directed this movie, his last film was Raya and the Last Dragon that went straight to streaming last year. Turning Red, Soul, Oscar-nominated Pixar movies, straight to streaming. Doesn't mean people didn't see them and love them, but it's different. And you don't go to work for those companies, or at least you didn't, to make a product that wasn't going to have the fanfare of a theatrical release. But what was confusing to me, oh, and then the other point, which I thought was interesting, was that this movie has what I believe is Disney's first out young person, teenage character. And mm-hmm. that's the character of Ethan, voiced by Jabuki uh, Young White. Yeah, the, the comments in the deadline blog post are a lovely place to be if you want to read about that. This movie is celebratory, honestly, and it handles issues of representation in a really lovely, thoughtful, 
way. It's it's really a, a I, th- I thought it was a I thought it was a phenomenal family movie. The thinking in this article was after Chapek's sort of two step about the don't say gay bill, they couldn't back off from putting this movie into theaters. It's a shame for any movie to be a, a political grenade in any way, even if that's true, whether that's true or not. But then also in the article, they were like, Hocus Pocus 2, which I know you've been checking for, was apparently a huge deal. But they put that straight to streaming. Disenchanted with starring Amy Adams, a movie that exists, a sequel to like the 12-year-old Dude, movie when Enchanted. when I was looking at the pictures of, Di- of yeah. Hocus Pocus 2 and Disenchanted, I was like, did I go to 700 Club in Philadelphia over the weekend and have myself yes. a, a full night out? Because I was like, Amy Adams had a movie recently? Bette Midler in- and Sarah Jessica Parker were in a movie recently? While you were there, did you check if our friend Matt's fleece is still above the speaker? It is. Because I think he stuffed it up there in 2003 and never took it back. Um, I guess the thinking there was, I I don't know what the thinking there was. There's stuff that we are not privy to, which is like talent um, compensation deals. And, you know, there was a lot of talk about how do we pay the directors of these Warner Brothers movies that are going straight to streaming, who have profit participation deals. The same would be true in reverse. If you sign up to do something that is intended to be streaming, yeah, and then you, you put it probably, in the box office. It's like, sorry, Sarah Jessica Parker, the the forty five million dollars that we made on opening weekend yes, or you whatever. Don't, you don't see a piece of that. I got it. You don't yeah. get to touch that. But it, it's it's weird. But I guess Disney is in a weird place because they are actively involved in multiple businesses at once: the yeah. theatrical business and the streaming business. In addition to theme parks and cruises, Netflix story is different, right? Because for as much as Glass Onion being a box office draw is great for theatrical movies. That is absolutely without value for Netflix. Yeah, isn't that paid sort of all funny those hundreds though? of millions? Yeah, it's like if you're in a retu and you want to get Bardo out on, you know, screens for a week. That's probably like true in a retu heads might go see that and be like, yeah, I needed, I needed the yeah. big screen theatrical experience. Putting Glass Onion out, frankly, is to me not a good idea. I mean, if the whole point of paying $300 million is to own the rights to these movies and you don't care about the $15 million that they bring in in limited release over the course of a week before it gets mm-hmm. to streaming, the only thing you're doing is shaving the $15 million yes. worth of people off of the people and, who would be like, at midnight, I am going to watch Glass Onion. And not just those people. The people who are like, boy, I really want to see that. I better restart my Netflix subscription or I better subscribe now that they've cracked down on password sharing or exactly. whatever. They spent that $300 million for a very specific goal, and it was not box office receipts. It was to give themselves an unimpeachable draw to get people to either sign up for or stick with the service. And from that perspective, it seems like it was a good investment. But we are still in this very uncomfortable moment where, you know, I don't, I was about to say, we don't know Ryan Johnson personally. I think that may make us the only members of the media in Los Angeles who could claim that. But I feel like he must be, like, he knows he made this deal and people told him and he sees the zeros and it was a good deal. But I feel like we know who this, we know who this guy and what motivates him and theatrical matters, right? I'm and sure. So I would imagine that he's yeah. in there. His people are calling Reed Hastings and Netflix over the weekend being like, come on, come on, come on, let's let this happen. And then you can be like HBO a week later, but it does it simply doesn't make sense. I don't know. I mean, I, so you're, what we're really talking about here is one movie can do good per screen business and actually yep. maybe be bad for the company that released it on screens. Yes. And another movie can have, I don't know, I guess it flopped $27 million, right? Is that what I saw? Uh, global box office against like yep. a $245 million budget somehow. You know, and Chick- then that's not cheap. And then that gets into these questions about whether or not, well, should it have gone to Disney Plus or should it have, you know, what what, did, what went wrong here? And was it just the wrong movie for the wrong moment or was it not marketed 
appropriately or properly or whatever the question is. But the thing that's kind of been fascinating me, both reading about the Iger stuff, all the fallout from that, this idea that he is going to quote unquote fix what Chapek did, even though there is obviously plenty of a, a pretty active school of thought that suggests that Chapek maybe not delicately, but was more or less running the Iger playbook of like where we're going to go going forward. Mm -hmm. This is something that we touched on when the Iger thing happened, which is basically, I think we're now only now reckoning with COVID and that like everything that COVID did to this industry and the way in which some of the masters of the universe tried to make COVID rather than a crisis into an opportunity to reshape everything and change Mm -hmm. the paradigm is they accidentally did. And now nobody knows what to do with it. It's almost like the to paraphrase like the no country for old men line where it's like, if the rule you followed got you here of what use was the rule, like you guys tried to like break the, the, the wheel and show us that, you know, movies can come out the same day on your streaming service. You don't have to leave the house. Just give us 15 bucks a month and look at this library of content. And it's like, Oh yeah, well now the movie theaters are dying. And then it's like, well, okay, we'll put it in the movie theaters for a little bit. And it's like, well, yeah, now I don't need to watch it on Netflix. Do you know what I mean? So these kinds of, weird machinations that everybody did over the course of COVID have now come home at a time when people are more or less willing to go to the movie theaters and we don't have an like a sort of functional <laughs> cinema going experience, nor do we have a particularly like satisfactory streaming experience. No, it's it's the worst of all worlds. And I think that it's it's interesting because Disney basically broke movies over the last 10 years. Yeah. And you know, created a paradigm where movies to be successful have to cost, you know, upwards of $200 million and re- and get in receipts worldwide close to a billion dollars. Otherwise, what is it? It's not mm-hmm. even a movie. Right. That set expectations at a certain place of what movies are. Then movies as an experience went away, but the expectations and standards did not. And so now Disney is existing in a world very much of its own making where to make Marvel product, to make Star Wars product, and the third piece of it that we didn't touch on when we had the beginnings of this conversation last week, animated films, they need to spend upwards of $200 million on all of them yeah, and put them in a place where there are no ticket sales. Give them away, essentially, at a service that they decided to heavily discount as a loss leader for brand identity and shareholder act, uh, uh, um, subscriber information, and et cetera, et cetera. That's not tenable. But that's where we are. And so I do think the real, you know, Iger is a million percent in the honeymoon phase and it, and it only continues. Like since we did the podcast about it last week, any conversation I've had with anyone creative, whether it's a network executive they're or elated. people making movies, they're overjoyed. Ecstatic. They all love him personally and they love his creative vision. They're like, oh, well, he watches cuts before I do and he invests in us. And that was an interesting thing in this deadline story about the Strange World release, which is that I guess... The, the ding on Chapek, which feels very convenient, you know, he was some, you know, bean counter Bob, was that he had sort of let the, the, the bright boys in finance decide what went in what box. Yes. And that Iger will return that to the creative heads of the company whom he trusts to give the best platform and opportunity for the vision of the people who made it. That's lovely. That's going to get people excited. That's within the company. That's going to get them invested in their projects and doing their best work, et cetera, et cetera. But what happens when the next visionary thing stiffs. Yeah, or I mean gets has to get eaten as a loss for streaming. I I don't quite know what to do with it. The margins are just way too high and way too big and the stakes now existentially for these companies are enormous. And I don't know what they're playing for. Are they playing for global mm-hmm. box office? Are they playing for subs? What happens if subs just plateau? 
what happens if we're finding out relatively yeah. in real time, this is how many people on Earth want Disney Plus. And well, you can put Luke Skywalker on there or you can put Strange World on there or you can put whatever on there. There is going to be a plateau. And there's going to be a plateau for Netflix and there's going to be a plateau for these things. And when we get to that point and we find out that that plateau does not necessarily pay for the levels of content investment that these companies have been making, these billion dollar bets yep. on content, yet we've changed everybody's viewing behaviors to the point where even though I'm two episodes into 1899, I'm like, what else is there on Netflix to watch? Yep. I'm, my brain's broken by by like the the what what happened. So I don't I can only imagine what it's like for anybody else. And so then, what's the actual metric of success? We also your point about plateauing is correct, and I feel like people a lot smarter than us have been checking on that for a while. We may have reached it. You know, I, I remember talking to someone a few years ago, being like, you know, the international expansion is because that's where they're still undecided voters, basically. Like Apple can push into different territories, Netflix can go big in India because they're still relatively large you know, communities that have not been given the beautiful opportunity of spending eight ninety nine a month or fifteen ninety nine a month or whatever. Or watching it, an ad supported tier or whatever, yeah. To join the fun. But you can't just expand forever. There is a limit. And the next frontier is, I was only half joking before, is password sharing. Like that's where the next crackdown comes in because the next the next opportunity to get more people paying in every month is to make sure that everyone is fairly paying in. Now when you do that, you're going to piss off a lot of people. You're going to make the user experience even harder because, you know, let's, I, I don't know how this game's out, but right now, and I'm not encouraging any thieves to come do this, but right now I am ostensibly signed into HBO Max, like on my phone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. That's an opportunity. That's password sharing, yeah. right? I mean, it's within myself, but other people, I could lend it to someone. So are we going to enter a world where you have to enter your password every time you choose to watch Netflix, which is another barrier that seems small, but will affect people's feelings about service. There are benefits to this wild rush, which was just this flood of content, some of which has been amazing, but we might start feeling the other side of it soon. Yeah, and then you start to get into questions about what kind of stuff gets made, which is ultimately mm -hmm. the thing that we care about the most. And it's like, you know, there will always be, or at least it seems for the time being, there will be an HBO where they make things like White Lotus. Mm -hmm. There will be an FX, at least for the time being, on Disney that still makes things like The Bear. But whether or not these bets get so huge that if even something as traditional, frankly, as Glass Onion requires a $300 million investment right. by a tech company... You know, your stories of like, we made this movie for $25 million and it made $75 million and everybody went home happy and a little bit richer are going to become fewer and fewer. I mean, but, even this year, you can count on one hand the, the amount of times that's happened. It's really like that Channing Tatum movie, Dog, was one where kind of came out in a dead zone. It was a feel-good movie that appealed to a lot of different quadrants of people. I think they made that movie really cheap. It's essentially like Channing Tatum and literally a dog. And it made like 80 million bucks. And so like th those are the kinds of movies that used to be like the bread and butter of Hollywood because they were, they made everybody feel good about making them, but they also like then cut a, a tidy profit. And right. now it's well, just like, well, okay, so we have to put in a quarter of a billion dollars to get this thing off the ground and it needs to make a billion for everybody to feel good about it. Then you're only going to be making five kinds of movies. Well, okay. So what is, here's three examples of what's the best case forward for Hollywood. And I think the answer is clear, but I don't know if that's the answer that's been chosen. So on one end of the spectrum, you have 
I mean, let's not beat up on Lord of the Rings or Dragon. Let's say Secret Invasion, which is an upcoming mm -hmm. Disney Plus Marvel show based on a really good storyline in the comic books that essentially feels like a movie. And I mean, does that Sam deal is returning. with the admirality of William Rhodes? Or it, it's actually you find out that he is was not born in the United States. He's a citizen of Sokovia. So it actually, it's, it's kind of the birther movement comes to gotcha. the MCU. You're going to love it. It's basically the discovery that many, many people, whether they're heroes, villains, or political people, are Skrulls, the shape-shifting villains from, they were used in the Captain Marvel movies. So Sam Jackson is back as Nick Fury in this TV show. I imagine Kobe Smulders is in it. Um, I know Amelia Clark is making her MCU debut in it. It feels like the kind of project that will have significance for the larger movies and a lot of cameos probably from the movie stars. They've been making it forever. It's probably stupid expensive. Just just dumb. You don't even want to think about it expensive. Yeah. yeah. Then you have another option, which is our favorite thing to talk about, which is Andor, which is a, a, a vision, a path forward for just grown-up, brilliant storytelling, production design, character work, everything, genre, everything we love. And the genre not just being sci-fi, Trojan horse into a Star Wars show. But we could pretend it's Trojan horse, but the Trojan horse was fucking expensive. That was a big horse. Oh, yeah. So this is also a $200 million show. When all is said and done, without like the, the amortized, amortized whatever season two, like, is this the same cost as Secret Invasion? Maybe. But it's really good, and I feel confident saying it'll be better, right. even though I don't know anything about Secret Invasion. And then you have the bear. The bear, the bear cost the catering budget for the episodes in the prison of Andor. The whole right. series. Right. They filmed it in like six weeks in Chicago. Nobody was checking for it. And in terms of return on investment, eyeballs, buzz, potentially award stuff. IP Enormous. potential. Right. Enormous oh, no, I mean, like effects. I'm saying it doesn't have IP yeah. potential. It doesn't have like downstream like merchandising opportunities, although I've been seeing a lot of Yes Chef. Yeah, posters. it actually does. Yeah, but, you could make a whole cookware line. <laughs> but, but but to your point, like it seems we, we credit FX a lot for using their lack of, I mean, they don't have the same artillery and firepower, even though they're now owned by Disney, of being more nimble, right? And market inefficiencies. So like, could more of these people realize the market inefficiency is making smaller things that are better? Like, can right. we do that? Or will they lose face if one of them misses or shareholder confidence or whatever? But like, I mean, White Lotus, especially this season, you see the money of sure. these rich people. But it's still not as expensive well, as some of the, these other the shows. One of the amazing things is that you and I really did grow up in a time when, say, like, it wasn't that uncommon for one of our, for our favorite movies to be directors maxing out a credit card and taking that movie that was on the, the whole festival thing. That circuit. was the dream of the 90s. There, were, there was El, El Mariachi or Jim Jarmusch movies or Hal Hartley movies or early Steven Soderbergh movies. Like These movies were made even, yeah. really fast, cheap, and then they would, if they could make three, four, five, eight million dollars at the box office at art houses, that would be a huge return on investment. And now I feel like the cost of production and you know, whatever you owe that to, whether, you know, when you go see Tar or you go see Triangle of Sadness, there's 47 production companies from all over the globe involved. You know what I mean? By the time it gets to your screen and that movie makes $7 million at like <laughs> boutique cinemas and it just yeah, has to I, basically hope on getting an awards boost. Yeah, but I, I, I feel like it's worth making a, a, a distinction between like the Tars of the world. And let me yeah, just say, right. watching Tar, one of the great experiences I've had in the last year I absolutely fucking love that movie. Me too. And, Me too. Oh my God. I hope everyone goes goes and sees it, especially in a theater. But Tar and Dog 
you know, shouldn't be in the same conversation because Tar's ceiling was always low. I mean, Tar can get awards. It it is art. It deserves to be made. But you know, a, a two and a half hour meditation on women in classical conducting and cancel culture is not the same upside as Channing Tatum and a dog. Mm-hmm. It's just it, it's it's just not. But I, I am curious to see who can be nimble here and just invest is not everything. The best way to win an arms race might be not to get into the arms race. And well, I don't know is, how also, that makes sense for companies and what they would do. There was also a time where you could reliably count on studios to have either, you know, your Fox searchlight or Paramount vantage style shingles right. that they would be like, well, we want to be in business of making interesting and provocative movies. And every once in a while, one of these might jump over to the mainstream and really take off. And I, we don't really see a lot of that. Now, you and I have been talking past each other a little bit in this conversation, mixing up what's TV and what's movies. But the problem is, is that, you know, Glass Onion was made by Netflix, which usually puts out TV shows. Disney Plus put out Andor, which is the best thing I've seen this year. But it was like, that's a TV show, you, you know, on, on what is essentially but, like a, a company that's known for making historically important pop culture movies. I, it, all that stuff gets confused after a while. But we're not the only ones confusing it. I mean, I, I had a meeting recently with Searchlight and they were like, we're a film company historically, but now we make TV because right. we just make stuff and right. we're not sure which box to put it in. Like that's what's happening on, on both ends of it. You know, or you have a thing like you're most anticipated for 2023, Armor Wars about Colonel Rhodes you know, that his story is just too big to be a TV show. That's true. And thank God Kevin Feige realized that and put it on the big screen where it belongs. But but the big, for me, the big, like, is this a TV show or movie thing is coming in this next phase of Marvel movies where they're like, they're making a movie called Thunderbolts with Julie Louis-Dreyfus and, uh, and Wyatt Russell. And it's like, and, you know, many other people as well. And David Harbour. But I'm like, that that doesn't sound like a movie to me. And is it going to succeed because it's Marvel and Marvel tells us it's a movie or have we gotten to the point where none, none of that matters or is it also confused now that, that or maybe that everything it's a, maybe it's a out? reaction to what they felt like was ultimately a muted relationship that fans had with that batch of, of shows that came out in 2020 or you know like when the, the Wanda Falcon Loki run which those shows have varying degrees of attributes but i would one i would guess that like none of them ever feel like doctor strange 2 to disney you haven't seen wakanda yet right i haven't you saw triangle of sadness instead <laughs> i'll tell you what i watched so i, I mean, was over the over the i was planning on going to see wakanda over the weekend but i never got to it while i was uh hanging out at the house and i watched a bunch of stuff i watched the first few episodes of 1899 not to be confused with 1923 i watched more fleischman Watched the White Lotus, obviously. But one night I was uh, hanging out in the living room uh, reading, and I hear from the other room my wife go, Does Bix come back? And she had started watching Andor. So what? We Why didn't just, I get texts about this? So I just started rewatching Andor from episode two on. And let me tell you something. If you guys are listening to us, obviously you're probably Andor fans. The rewatch is pretty incredible i dare say maybe even more rewarding than the first time through because when you know what's going to happen to some of these people you can kind of dial in earlier conversations that may have felt not like throwaways but maybe like connective tissue and there's an episode specifically announcement that i thought was kind of not the weakest of the 
amazing batch of episodes that we got, but was like, you know, a little lower on my totem pole of importance. I was kind of more of like the I episode 10, that kind of thing. And announcements fucking incredible on rewatch. Which one is that? That's the one uh, where he goes back and they have the conversation where it's like, I'll worry about you all the time. And Marva's like, that's just oh, love. Yeah. yeah. Like, but that whole episode is great. Um, now, do you intend to have Tony Gilroy back in the pod to talk actually, about the rewatch three uh, times? Video off on this podcast now because he was pretty disappointed that you didn't didn't show up on Wednesday. I, 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 not the only one. I mean, I, I <laughs> hope you told him I was choosing the magic of Broadway over the opportunity to talk to him again. But um, yeah. So anyway, it's just an incredible. Incredible. I mean, in fact, like uh, one of the things that's been cool about Andor is that in talking with Tony on Wednesday, you know, he was talking about the the funeral sequence at the end of the, the season finale and how the music was inspired by the horns on the first two albums by the band. Yeah. And so I just read a, a the band biography this weekend. <laughs> I was just like, this guy's just got living rent free in my head right now. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's worth mentioning, but you know, I, I think, there used to be a time in this podcast where people were interested in what I watched on airplanes and it was relevant because I know what it was. Yeah. I guess what I want to say though, Chris, is that strange world wasn't the only movie I watched this weekend in which a son is ambivalent about farming, despite that being the legacy of his father. It's your takes on interstellar are very weird to me. I had never seen interstellar guys. And as you know, I deeply believe the best place to see Christopher Nolan cinema is on the back of a Delta seat flying over Colorado. And it's not that my takes are weird. I just felt so keenly that it was the most expensive apology letter ever written from a dad to his kids being like, here's why I have to go film Batman in Pittsburgh. Like, it Andy, is entirely how about... How your reaction to Interstellar? I mean, I, I the entire understand movie, if you hate it, but that is a really... I didn't hate it. Okay. But, my, but, but it, it was so keenly... I don't think... This isn't a bit. Like, it does feel to me a movie about a father who is taken away from his family a lot for work and finding some sort of noble or heroic uh, structure uh, scaffolding to put his work into in order to justify his absence. Because the movie, I mean, my guy, sorry, spoilers for a nine-year-old movie. By the way, I thought the movie was five years old. (laughs) But I was like, wow, Anne Hathaway, interesting bump in her career during the fallow period. And it's like, no, no, this was still part of the the, the upswing. Right. So the movie, I mean, the, the dude, he just pieces on his children. He, he fully pieces to on his children. To save humanity, yeah. Eh. Well, does he? I mean, yeah. Okay, yeah, yes. I guess he does. <laughs> I, I, my, my feeling about the movie was, uh, I, and I mean this sincerely, like, I'm very, very happy still, even when I don't like his movies and make fun of him. Like, it is wild that at least one person gets to be like, Dear Warner Brothers Pictures, please write me a check for $300 million for some wild-ass fucking shit my brother and I thought up. Right. And the, you watch Interstellar, and the first 30 minutes are so insane and compressed. They're like, this is a season of television, but he doesn't do television. So instead, he's just like, guess what, gang? NASA's in Kansas. And you're like, bet. That makes sense. <laughs> that totally works. And, you, and that's good. I actually really like that it's not here's why they built it here. Like that, that has ruined storytelling in a lot of ways. The the need to, to have that architecture always to explain every single thing and then stretch it over the course of a season. Like he does widescreen, big screen stuff and he takes crazy swings and did all of this work. No, I don't think you would argue that it does, but like 
there are moments that are transcendent. Absolutely. The library of love, man. How can you, how can you ask for anything else from a bookshop? I, I, I would ask for anything but that. Yet at the same time, I was like, yeah, they went for it. Yeah. I was like, he's not going to say it's love. He's not going like, to, oh, oh, he's, <laughs> he's going to say, he's going to say it's love. Also, shout out to Wes Bentley. That, that's, a, that's a tough beat for my guy. It, Wes Bentley's living life large on Yellowstone right now. Jamie's no, it's having, working out for him now. Speaking of Yellowstone, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you if you'd gotten a chance to watch the 1923 trailer that I sent yeah. over. <laughs> you added that you sent it just to make it more personal. Well, I, did of you course. know that it existed? Yes, and in fact, I, I wanted to watch it before I recorded my consistent pop culture podcast with my friend Chris Ryan. A lot of people are asking, when is Andy going to commit to one of these shows named after a year? Did, did you hear this at CPAC? Is that what people are talking many, about? Many it? people have been coming up to me on the street with tears in their eyes saying, I thought Andy <laughs> was going to talk about 1899. Uh-huh. Um, 1923, I, I just want to say that I, I can't believe that Helen Mirren is ripping off your Bono calling the president from stage accent. Mine? Excuse me. <laughs> wow. It originated with you in Bill's pool house when we were recording the early versions of this it, podcast. Really? For the rare. Yes. We were hanging out with Bill doing yeah. a pod and I think that's when oh. I think we did like a long U2 episode. Well, we did talk about that because I that, that was a memorable thing that I, I think you did, you did we both we didn't know each other but I, I did see yes. you two at Veteran Stadium on the Zoo Station or Zoo TV and he tour calls, where called he, the president. he called the White House every yeah 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 wow well you took it and you ran with it that's well, your no, thing and, and then Hel- Helen Mirren Helen Mirren flew with it so this is the new uh, Yellowstone saga it's about the Dutton family it's set in 1923 obviously in Montana as they build the ranch it stars Harrison Ford and Hel- Helen Mirren <laughs> crazy and then. In the trailer, you're like, okay, cool. Timothy Dalton's in this. He plays a, of like a, a land baron who's running up against Harrison Ford here, and Bron from Game of Thrones is his muscle. And then it just kind of like is like also big game hunting in Africa with James Badge Dale. Yeah, it's out of Africa also. <laughs> it's fucking wild. I mean, there's certain things. I think Christopher Nolan would appreciate this. There are certain things that do make me think sometimes we're living in a simulation. And it's not that like Berenstein Bears used to be spelled with an E or that Nelson Mandela died in prison or whatever else people feel like was true. Um, It is that James Bond, Indiana Jones, and Queen Elizabeth are co-starring in an epic Western miniseries on Paramount fucking plus. Yep. Okay. Next thing you're going to tell me, Sean Penn and Julia Roberts are starring in a Watergate show on stars. You know what I mean? Like, at least we know that never happened. Like, that's... This is crazy. Yeah. It's, it is entirely insane. The price tag on this show, I can't even get into. It is definitely more secret invasion than it is the bear. Well, right? I do think that they and, have gotten to the point where they have now built up like the sets or in Montana that he shoots on. I that's think, true, and he writes I think everything. That, yeah, and I th- so I think that like overhead-wise, they're probably just shooting it where they shoot Yellowstone. Even the Africa sequences? I mean, especially the Africa sequences. That did not scream <laughs> Africa to me. Um, will you be watching this show? Um, well, will you give it a chance? Yeah. I mean, did I watch 1880? What, what was it called? 1883. Did I watch that? You may have. The Sam Elliott yes. one? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think it'll be similar. Okay. Will I, I take one for the team? Yes. 
Well, you I mean, watch- Helen Mirren looks like she's on one. And, the, and there's a difference here, too. I will say, like, there are actors like Helen Mirren and Timothy Dalton who are classically trained and blah, blah, blah. But when they see red meat, they go for it. Whereas I think Harrison Ford, especially age 80 Harrison Ford, is just like, point me in this direction and I'll growl. You know, I, I don't think he's necessarily modulating his fun meter for something like this. No. So I am curious about that. But yeah. Will you, will you watch 1899? Do you think you'll check that out? I did want to say yes. That is, I want, that is I want next to on my queue. Save my takes until I watch like one or two more. I will say that just as far as I'm concerned, though, I'm missing the the relatability of the high school kids from Dark. Well, there's one thing that Dark was. It was relatable. <laughs> from the cops driving Audis right down to the absolute nihilistic, heavy, heavy, heavy gothic germanness of it no that's next on my list i might even start it tonight that i I was in a similar place to it i i love dark as everybody knows and uh i didn't feel felt like it needed a full attention not traveling visiting people and maybe watching one and falling asleep during it. energy which was all i could muster this episode is brought to you by mint mobile if you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Should we get into White Lotus? Yes, very curious to hear your thoughts on this. I love, and I am not originating this thought, but I cannot pinpoint exactly who kind of started talking about this. I love the fact that there is no hero or villain on this show yet. Yeah. At episode five. And that every person who you're just like, okay, I'm 
I'm I'm going to fixate on Porsche or I'm going to fixate on Harper or I'm I'm thinking it's going to be this person. It's just like it's just writing and TV making that's free of that the weight of like the protagonist's journey, the hero's journey, and all of, all of the things that go along with that that I think make make TV feel very familiar and make movies feel very familiar. But I I just feel like um, flying without a net, you know, when I'm watching the show, and so it almost makes it difficult. Like again, like you can feel him slowly turning the heat up over the course of the season, things getting crazier and crazier, the alcohol flowing a little bit more liberally, people partying a little harder, people getting a little bit more burned out on being where they are. Uh, It's obviously become much more sexually charged in a variety of different ways. And I just find myself like intoxicated by it, which I think is the point, but it's so interesting because like, what do you, when somebody's like, Oh, what did you, what did you think of this season of white Lotus so far? What would you Mm -hmm. actually say other than I I love it? I'm having a hard time. That's come up a few times with people who were skeptical or dubious or just wanted to hear like maybe maybe that I did or you had like a, a much a, a pithier, quicker answer as to what's good about it. And I find that very hard to reckon with or respond to because I, I agree. I, I find it intoxicating. I actually feel like a little bit queasy in my liver watching it due to uh-huh. the amount of drinking that's in this season. One thing that strikes me is that Mike White in his career has never, ever catered really to mainstream expectations or, or tastes. No, but like Enlightened, um, for but, instance, it's like Laura Dern's character is very much like the hero of Enlightened, even if well, she's a complicated one. This is what I'm saying. This is him at his most unfettered because he made a hit and then he had carte blanche basically as long as it was characters who were checking into a resort, which isn't to say he didn't get, I'm sure, robust notes from the excellent team at HBO Drama Development or whatever, but like this is him without a net. Like he doesn't need to cater to anyone. And this is what we're seeing him do. And I find it fascinating. He is not playing the hits. I, I, I think the best example of that is what he's done with Tanya. Like Jennifer Coolidge character and, and Jennifer Coolidge as a performer, you know, has always been uh, loved or frankly not loved by people for what she does, the thing that she does. And Mike White is the poet laureate of the thing that she does and gave her gave us her showcase role as that nuance. It's not just one note. I don't mean to suggest that it is, but there is a clear delineation from who she is in Best in Show to who she is in White Lotus season one. It's richer, it's deeper, it's award-winning, but you know what I mean. Yeah. You get the sense that it's going to be more of the same this season. Oh, but now she has an assistant and now she's married, but she's never happy, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's certain and then once Greg left, what's going on with her is totally off the map. She's giving a very, very different performance. She's giving a whole different emotional spectrum and her usage rate in the show is entirely different. She is not an extreme character anymore. In fact, she's in some ways the most stable. I was going to say, you're reacting to the fact that she is the straight man now because she's paired with Tom Hollander and Tom Hollander is like, I am the, the category five storm blowing across this island now. So Jennifer Coolidge has like these great one liners, but like Tom Hollander is the one who's like soaking up the entire screen. So it's like this ingenious mid-season pivot to take the most kind of cartoonish, frankly, character that he's got and then make that person into somebody who's basically a bystander, but an amazing bystander. And and there is nothing being done. There's two episodes left. At this point, in the first season, we had the robbery. You know what I mean? There 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 were bigger, stakesier, more traditional things. We saw the arc of uh, Murray Bartlett's character 
as it was unfolding, you know, with it, with, there was a slow motion catastrophe, the, the drugs in the bag. And we kind of saw where that was going. We knew a little bit about the character. The, the war, the escalating war between Murray Bartlett and Jake Lacey, right? We knew that was heading nowhere, nowhere good. This season is much quieter. It's much sadder. Mm-hmm. People are sort of, they're not strafing each other with machine guns. They're sticking each other with shivs. And the effect is very, it's disconcerting and it's, it's unfamiliar. And I keep coming back to the word intoxicating because I watch these episodes. I never look at my watch. I never really think, oh, this is going to happen next. We're going to go to these characters. And clearly this is where it's all going. Um, I felt the strain in some of the coverage of this episode today. When I, I, I sort of buzzed around and looked at recaps and you see headlines like, Jaws drop at that shocking moment. And, okay, yeah, it was, was it, it wasn't shock. It was I thought a it was little kinda, bit surprising. I, I kind of saw it coming yeah. when, when they were like, oh, yeah. I mean, like, for instance, like, I, I definitely think that, you know, you mentioned to me, you were like, oh, is Daphne's kid, the is, is the father of Daphne's first child, like, supposed to be her trainer or something like that, right? Like, yeah. I had not picked up on that. I thought that was just her screwing up when showing her iPhone photos. And then there's a lot of, like, What's going on with the Quentin clique? Are these guys con men? Is that why uh, Quentin's quote unquote nephew doesn't have money for dinner that night and they they run out on the bill? There's a lot of like you can speculate and you can and of course there's just the like who's going to wind up in these body bags and how many of them are killed by Aubrey Plaza <laughs> or whatever. But it does not feel like. Um, there are sometimes when you watch shows and you're just like, that's what you're consumed by. You're like, who's going to do this and who's going to do that and what's going to happen to this person? And I'm just kind of like, I'm much more floating with this show in a really cool way. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think the, I mean, I think there's, there's, a, there's a relatively simple version of this where the so-called nephew is also an escort of some kind and mm-hmm. thus doesn't have walking around money. Um, and, you know, he's he and Portia are actually in that case, they're sort of similar status, right? right? And that they are appendages and they have to go where they're told and do what they're told. Um, I think the the Cameron doesn't actually have any money theory that you floated to me last week starts to starts to feel potentially true. The, the moment with the baby picture was deeply confusing to me and I don't know if that's in a good way. I I, I did go on to these, these recaps to be like, Vul- I'm sure Vulture someone is- Vulture seemed confused by it as well. Just sort of- Yeah, I was like, like they, they must know. But my takeaway was, she's like, there's a very strong, handsome, blonde man in my life. Oh, whoops, I showed you the wrong picture, which is that, so her baby is not Cameron's, their right. first babies. But then there's another version of it where she's just like, you should have a child. Um, I thought this was a really stunning showcase episode for Megan Fahey, who's just low-key one of the best performers on this season but yeah I, I I think it's really I could see people having the exact opposite take on this or reaction to this which is me saying if you look at the the three generations of Italian American men storyline and and Albie now with Lucia and father having to watch this and being like it's this isn't my fault but to my dad it's his fault etc cetera, etc cetera. you could look at that and say all of this is very clearly predictable and was sketched out from the beginning. And you could then branch off in one of two ways. My take is that speaks to the mastery here that I love this. I love that it is slowly walking towards this inevitability between them and giving space for each of these moments for each, like almost banging, you know, you know, those old cartoons where a character falls off a building and hits every ledge and flagpole. Like 
we're hitting everyone on the way down. Yeah, yeah. There's a version of it where you're like, so he set up something obvious and is delivering on something obvious. I, I could get that as a criticism, but I just think it's kind of sumptuous. And, and, and there's something unsettling too about the usage of Sicily because this, more than any other episode, we're like, oh, COVID's over. Now, fun fact, not over, but in terms of what people are limited to, and that has fundamentally changed what the show is, which was absolutely just limited by its location last season and intentionally so, then the, the visual language of it changes once they're on a fucking yacht with a hot tub on it. Yeah. They're walking through downtown Palermo at night, uh, going to the opera. I mean, it's it's just a different level and it becomes almost like eyes wide shut Kubrickian horror when Quentin is like, I would die for beauty. I mean, that. what is that? Yeah. What do we do with that? I that think mean? that the characters in the first season to me might be more indelible. Like I think that there are performances in that first season and also just you know, inventions in that first season that will stick with me. But I think that the writing and that the storytelling in this season is far more to my liking and to like, you know, maybe more sophisticated in a lot of ways. I think it's interesting that for a season of a show that actually was able to knock down barriers and walls and get outside, this feels more like a horror movie to me. Interesting. It it, it, it feels, I mean, there was some interesting camera stuff. They did, he did the, um, the dolly zoom in the villa when Tanya wakes up and that's the that's the the thing where you you put you lay the track for the camera and you pull it backwards as you zoom, zoom in. in yeah it's the Scorsese so zoom yeah Scorsese zoom I, I actually refer to it as the Briar Patch pilot zoom which is weird <laughs> I think you originated um, I, I don't know who it, yeah. you're referring to I, I, I someone else said Spike Lee and I I don't Again, not Well, you stopped but... watching Scorsese after you disrespected Marvel, so. <laughs> I retroactively yeah, erased did. all the films from my memory. Um, no, but like, it, it, it's it's a horror movie in a way. And and it's there in, what's her name, Valentina? Is she the, the, the concierge or the, yeah. the manager? Like her face, you know, uh, staring at the woman that she's actually making, Isabella, right? She's making her uncomfortable, like there is something that to that theory that that and that's part of the feeling that we're feeling you know it, it reminds me of what people have told me about movies that i won't see like midsummer yeah i mean i think it's it's awesome how he's also just talking about this place is like this sort of den of corruption and how everybody comes into these vacations with an idea about what they want and what they want, who they want to present themselves as. And even the staff are supposed to be presenting themselves. I mean, Valentina is correcting them on which hand Mm -hmm. to wave with and everything. But by the mid season point or a little bit further past that Valentina is essentially using her position of power to try to seduce a, a woman, right? Like, I mean, she's getting rid of the guy who was flirting with her. She's put making sure that she's like kind of adjacent to wherever she's going to be that day. And everybody is trying to get what they want. You know, Mia wants to be the piano player. Lucia wants to go to California. Valentina wants to be loved. Like all these people are kind of operating in a way where it's just very zero sum, but it's, it's the way that he tells the story. It's not, that's not on the text. That's more in the subtext. Two things I want to run by you before we call it a day. One is, do you believe, or, or do you, have you parsed the Lucia storyline like was that encounter with quote unquote her pimp was that real was that staged is she I don't know, playing because Albion? there's a lot of there's a lot of play acting going on right now right because yes. like if you think that Cameron and Daphne are running some sort of game and if you think that Lucia is essentially creating an environment where Albie's going to feel compelled to take her to California with him you know or, or, like, or pay for everything or right. whatever it may be so there's a lot and then and then this whole thing with Quentin just stinks whatever it is like you know, like obviously he has access to a lot of money and access to a lot of wealth, like accoutrement of wealth, but seems to be 
really sicking himself on on Tanya, and I wonder whether or not for for good reasons. So yeah, I I didn't think that that was straight up. Yeah, I think Tanya's line is worth holding in our minds, where she's just like, when they get to the villa, and she's like, it's such a relief to be around people with money, because they don't want any of yours, which seems a little weighted. Naive, yeah. (laughs) Um, The only other thing I was going to say was, I, I, I was prepared to start dinging the show for the thing that I find most offensive, which is not the gratuitous display of wealth. It's that these idiots are in Sicily and they only eat at the hotel restaurant. Is it all included, do you think? Uh, definitely not. Yeah, so they're just but, like that limited that they're just going to the hotel restaurant every night. Yeah, but I, again, I think that's a feature, not a bug, right? Like that's that's intentional. That's saying who these people are. They're trapped with each other. They're trapped with their lack of imagination or choices. Like they don't actually engage with the place that they're in, it's just another box to sit in and have the same things that you're used to. And you saw, I mean, obviously the most offensive scene to me was the wine tasting where they're just like, let's just get drunk. Yeah. I was like, are you not even, are you not even sniffing? Like, what are we doing here? What about the volcanic minerality of this place? Would would it, would it kill you to swirl? You know what I mean? Unreal. Um, We can wrap it up there. On Thursday, what are we going to talk about? Oh, you're putting it to me? No, I'm going to tell you what we're going to talk about. Oh. Slow Horses is coming back. On Thursday? I think it comes back Friday, but we, we can, we can well, do a little back preview. this week. Yeah. December 2nd. Jeez. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. What else? Tell me some more news about television. I'll, I'll gather up some more headlines and I'll, and I'll send you a, di- a digest. How about that? Maybe I'll what else are we my, we're watching 1899 slow horses. Fleischman. Fleischman is in trouble. We got lots of stuff. And then, you know, I'm always, I'm always down to just revisit random and or episodes. If you want to Andy, thank you so much. Kaya, thank you for producing us. We'll be back on Thursday. It's great to be back. Kai, just leave this channel open. I'm just going to lay down some, just some secondary and tertiary interstellar thoughts. Like, I just feel like, <laughs> I just feel like that's what the people want. <laughs>